Welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. This is a special episode as this is the big five zero episode 50. We have done half a century's worth of podcast episodes. So if you are a returning listener, welcome back. If you are listening to this for the first time, I am Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast and uh, we are so glad at how, how, how far it's grown thus far and we're looking forward to more growth in the future. Um, if you can, please take a second out to go and leave us a review. That would be very helpful. Plus, we love to know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what you guys want to hear more of and less of. We've recently been doing uh, a little bit of more of the off-brand topics, like uh, there's some episodes on um, how to get research done or how to set up research in your practice. So we have some upcoming episodes that uh, I'm sure you guys will be waiting to tune into on leadership and surgical training. So um, please go and leave us a review and then please share this with one person. If everybody shares this with one person, that would be a huge help. Now on to our episode for today. Today we are going to talk about scaphoid non-union advanced collapsed and slack. So a snack or slack wrist. And we're going to go a little bit more into that in the podcast itself. Um, but this is a really good episode. Um, Dr. Ryan Rose uh, is our guest for the day. Uh, again, we talk about a slack snack wrist. We talk about what that means. We talk about uh, dizzy deformities. We talk about the treatment algorithm, uh, the pros and cons for doing a proximal carpectomy versus a four corner fusion. What those are, for those of you that even don't even know what those are, uh, we kind of go over that as well. And uh, just a little bit more about Dr. Rose. He did medical school at the University of New Mexico. He did his residency at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, and he did his fellowship at New York University School of Medicine. So without further ado, we hope you all enjoy our episode with Dr. Rose. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Rose, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are uh, happy to have you on, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invite and having me on to talk about slack and snack wrist. Yeah, it'll be good. And I, actually, now that I think about it, you may be the first um, guest through Twitter. You may be, you, you, we may be our first Twitter, uh, I guess, referral or, you know, kind of going through there and uh, being on the podcast so you know thanks thanks again in another in another source uh, or another sense yeah no problem it's been interesting I was wasn't super involved in Twitter until about a year and a half ago but then the timing with the pandemic I've made some good connections made some good friends this is uh first podcast but probably the third educational uh, venue I've been part of just simply from Twitter so yeah it's been good and enjoyable yeah, and um, I, I myself had not been on Twitter for many, many years and just got on it not too long ago, maybe a couple of weeks, three, four weeks ago, and just randomly tweeting here and there. Um, so I'm I, I'm amazed, like, if you search, like, hashtag ortho Twitter, all the stuff that comes up, there's a lot of good discussions on there, um, a lot of educational stuff. So I'm um, actually pretty pretty impressed of, I guess, how Twitter is being used in the in the ortho world. Yeah, it, it's, it's been great. And you'll even see some interesting cases on ortho Twitter or 
some conversations and some lively debates on treatment options, especially when it comes to hand and wrist. Yeah. And, um, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So um, what we typically do is we like to start off just asking a couple of questions, getting, getting to know you. So since we just talked about hand and wrist, what are, what is the thing that brought you towards hand and wrist? Like what's the story that, that had you go and choose that, uh, that's that, that field or that specialty? Yeah, it's interesting. Cause when I first started residency, we'll just say a couple of years ago, we don't want to date me too much. Um, <laughs> you know, hand was actually my last choice and sports was my number one, but I think I had a misconception on what hand upper extremity really was. And then I had an amazing mentor in residency who kind of showed me what it could be. And as I started getting more involved with that and realizing all the variety and you get to be a, an orthopod, a neurosurgeon, a plastic surgeon kind of rolled up in one. I got really interested in it. And it went from there. Yeah, that's pretty neat. That's one of the things that I didn't um, think of. You know, there's a lot of a lot of nerve, um, a lot of nerve procedures that you do as a hand and upper extremity specialist transfers and. Um, you know, there's a lot of hand trauma. If you, I guess if you take hand trauma, there's a lot of hand trauma stuff. So a lot of different types of flaps and things that you can use that I initially wasn't um, keen on myself. I thought it was mostly like carpal tunnels and trigger fingers, you know, to tell you the truth. <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, I enjoy joints too. And that was in the two, but I realized I could do joints in hand, upper extremity, shoulder, elbow, wrist, fingers. Whereas if I did joint surgery, I was kind of stuck a little more towards the hip and knee realm. So I figured I'd be greedy and monopolize a whole bunch of different <laughs> surgeries. Wait, so, so you do shoulder replacements as well? I do shoulder and I do elbow. I'll admit oh, wow. I've become very busy with uh, wrist, elbow, and hand, and then a little bit of admin stuff. So my shoulder's been a little bit less, but I enjoy those too. Huh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know. Um, I know that was an option too, like being able to do the, the shoulder replacements. I guess if you're a hand and upper extremity specialist, you can do that, but huh. Yeah, didn't, didn't didn't think of that. So anybody that's listening that is uh, in residency and is trying to make a choice, seeing Dr. Rose has kind of broke it down. There's a lot of different um, options that you can that you can choose from. Um, so moving on to question number two is uh, if you had to give yourself some advice, you know, looking back at it now from the start of residency, is there anything that you tell yourself, you know, to maybe help get through residency or through fellowship? Uh, you know, is there anything in general that you may tell yourself? Yeah, it's, it's cliche, but one foot in front of the other. I think, you know, residency is, is tough. And now you even talk about all the extra stuff you all have to do that I didn't have to do, uh, surveys and so on. And, you know, some days it seems like it's a lot, but if you just kind of take what's in front of you and move forward, I think that um, is a good way to go about it. I also think uh, the thing that, you know, for all the listeners who are maybe considering what they want to do as far as if they want to subspecialize or do a fellowship. I thought about what is some of the uh, most stressful or quote unquote worst cases in each field that other people wouldn't want to do. And, and that helped narrow it down. You know, Dupuytrens is one that a lot of people kind of, you know, cross their eyes at and I actually enjoyed it. I said, okay, maybe I am going to have to be a little bit of a, a hand nerd here. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just actually just did my first, I'm on hand now and this is the first time I'm on the rotation we did our first duper trends like contracture release. Um, well, I think it was like last week. Uh, it was an interesting case, you know. I, yeah, he, I think our attending was saying that a lot of them recur. Um, a lot of them don't get better, but you know, you still kind of give these patients a chance. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I counsel all the patients saying if 
you know, we live long enough that they'd all reoccur, but hopefully this buys them enough time to where it does recur. If it recurs, it's no longer affecting the quality of life. Right. And it's a interesting surgery with some really fun anatomy, I think. Yeah. And then the third question we have for you is, do you have any uh, interests outside of the field of orthopedic surgery? I have a lot. I think one that I, I really enjoyed and loved doing, which has really taken a hit, is, is travel. I was yeah. lucky enough to do training in England, do training in New Zealand, and and it really kind of shows you, you know, when you have a little bit more of that broad experience and worldly perspective, you know, the good things about the U.S. and healthcare and some things that we can maybe do better. And but I, I miss the travel and seeing different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, I like to uh, travel myself, and that is something that is, has been near and dear and very, very missed during this whole global pandemic thing. Um, but moving on, I guess getting into the talk of the day, we're talking about Slack, Snack, Risk. And so we, ha- we have a um, case for you, uh, kind of one that we just made up that we could that we love to kind of go by. So say, um, Dr. Rose, for example, you have a 54-year-old male who's referred to your clinic by a primary care physician for wrist pain said he's been working as a laborer all his life and said he's had chronic wrist pain for many years and it's just gotten a lot worse. Um, given the fact that we're talking about slack and snack, can we just kind of start off saying what that is and, and you know, just so to give people a, a general basis because some people may not know? Yeah, no problem. So, you know, that here you can see this is appears to be a, a snack wrist or a scaphoid non-unit advanced collapse. So what happens when the scaphoid fractures and then it doesn't unite the mechanics of the wrist are altered. And you see a pretty predictable uh, progression of arthritis of the uh, styloid and the scaphoid first, which you can see here with the beaking of the radial styloid, as well as of the scaphoid. And then on a snack wrist, it goes towards the mid-carpal joint and the STT joint. Whereas when you start doing a slack wrist, that's when the SL ligament is ruptured. And that also has a pretty predictable pattern. It starts off at that same spot of the uh, scaphoid and the radial styloid, but then that tends to go towards the scaphoid fossa first. You know, it's it's something that I always talk with the residents about, especially when preparing for boards and OITE, but also just for a treatment algorithm. You know, that the stage two is an important part to kind of understand the difference between the two. Yeah, and and speaking about the stages, can you kind of? I mean, since we're on it, how do we um how do we stage this? You know, when we're looking at slack or you know scapulonoid advanced collapse, and you're just talking about the patterns, can we go over again one more time the patterns and what stage it is for each pattern? Absolutely, yeah. So here it looks like this picture is of a of a slack, meaning the SL ligament is out, and I want everyone to realize that this is a chronic presentation. You don't immediately go into arthritis or have these changes just from an SL injury. So it's something that needs to be chronic in nature. And everything we talk about is going to be salvage procedures because the anatomy is no longer normal. But when you see here the slack, the first picture there, you can see that the, the beaking of the scaphoid and the beaking of the radial styloid as well as the loss of cartilage becomes the first part of contact. After that, stage two is from the scaphoid and the uh, scaphoid fossa in the radius. The way I like to think about the difference between slack and snack is the the spoons in a drawer, which is not mine. That was actually by Watson. 
in the sense of when you're putting your silverware away and you line your spoons up perfectly, they all sit nice and, and there's no issues. If you have one that's rotated at all by 20 or 30 degrees, they don't sit nicely and they change their contact pressures and they get edge loading similar to like an arthroplasty. And so that's why in the slack, you start seeing that arthritis as stage two at, this, at the scaphoid fossa and the radius. The next stage is then the mid-carpal, which you can see on this illustration here at the bottom, the capitate and the lunate, there's lots of cartilage between the two. And so that's that stage three. And I will tell you that I'm one that believes in the stage four arthritis where the mechanics are so far off that the lunate and the lunate fossa starts getting wear and changes. And that obviously significantly changes your algorithm and what kind of surgeries are possible. Mm, I like that that analogy, the spoon and putting your spoons in a drawer, because, um, yeah, I mean, that's a really good analogy, because at least most people can understand what you're what you're talking about or what you mean. Um, and so slack, is there any type of an injury that typically happens? And then is there a deformity? I always read about this kind of deformity that that you see in slack wrists or patients that had, you know, injury to their scapholunate ligaments. Can we quickly just talk on what the deformity is and kind of the, I guess, mechanics behind it? Yeah, no problem. So the first, the, the reality is most of the time when this first happens or when there's an initial injury, you won't actually see much. Kind of this vague fell, uh, sometimes athletes get it and they talk about pain kind of at the dorsum of the wrist. Maybe it's a little bit swollen, but not anything too impressive. And it can easily be missed on x-rays because there's the stage where the the gapping of the scaphoid and the lunate or um, is no is not increased until you see a dynamic grip. Here in these pictures, what you see is already when it's kind of advanced and you have the scapholunate angle here, which normal is between 30 and 60. And they generally say anything greater than 70 shows there's some sort of instability. And, it, and if you don't mind, I, you know, I think one of the easiest things when understanding this DZ deformity is just a kind of a brief breakdown of the mechanics of the uh, proximal row. Yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, so so the, the easiest way to think about it is the scaphoid is always trying to flex. That, that's what it wants to do. You know, the STT joint is volar, so the compressive forces push it volar. The scaphoid has to flex to get out of the way with the radi radial deviation. So if you just think about the scaphoid flexing, you're halfway to figuring out any deformity. Then you have the triquetrum, which is the opposite. Its whole goal is to extend. That's all it wants to do. And then you have the lunate in the middle and it's bound to each of its neighbors. So when the scaphoid's trying to flex and the triquetrum's trying to extend, it's held in a relatively neutral position because it's equal. Now, if you injure one of these ligaments, say for instance, the SL, now the lunate is untethered from the scaphoid. So now the only acting force on that lunate is the triquetrum extending and now you see on this picture on the right, you can see that red line is actually the axis of the lunate pointing dorsally or tipping dorsally. And that causes that capitate and that lunate uh, to start getting increased contact pressure on the edges and arthritis. So I like to think of it in a mechanical way because it was, you know, especially when I was a resident trying to remember these, what does what, I felt like if I could remember the scaphoids flexing and the triquetrums extending and the lunate's neutral, then I would know if it was a DZ or a VZ, which isn't really this topic, uh, which way it'd be going. Ah, that's a good, um, uh, that's a great way to think about it because I'm, 
I'm still learning this stuff now. And I, you know, I, I have trouble remembering it too, but if we just remember that the skateboard likes to flex and that triquetrum likes to extend and lunate is kind of in between trying to keep them neutral. If you have any injury to the, you know, scapho lunate ligaments, your skateboard is going to want to flex and then there's nothing. Um, and then your triquetrum, which normally wants to extend, will extend with the lunate. So that's kind of gives you your DC, uh, DC to form. What does DC stand for, by the way? It's dorsal, dorsal intercalate segmental instability. And it's just essentially what this picture we're seeing right here on the uh, right is just that the remaining segment, the triquetrum and the lunate is now going dorsal and it's causing the capitate to go dorsally. And now some question, question to answer your question, at this point in time is when you start seeing a little more prominence, a little more fullness at the dorsum of the wrist because that capitate's starting to ride out. You also see the swelling on the dorsal radial aspect of the scaphoid and the radius just because that early arthritis, like we talked about stage one to stage two, has already taken place. And so that's when you get that deformity. And that's normally when they start kind of presenting to you is at this point in time. Not too often is it stage one or dynamic instability unless it's a, you know, a high level athlete or someone that's able to get in right away and just uh, notices something amiss. Ah, okay. No, that's a great explanation of um of the deformity and the mechanics of the proximal row. And I'm definitely uh, taking notes now because I'm on hand now and I know that that will definitely help me out. So kind of just going back to our patient, our 54-year-old laborer that came in with our uh, chronic uh, wrist pain, wrist injury, what are some of the things, and I know you mentioned it here just a second ago talking about uh, DISI, but can we just kind of go through what are some of the important things you want to find out when you're getting a good history from this patient? And what are some of the physical exam findings that we'll find on these patients? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it's always interesting because often when you ask these patients, they are similar presentation uh, that you have before uh, laborer often, and you say, hey, have you injured your wrist? And the answer is always no. And you say, okay, have you injured your wrist five to 10 years ago? And sometimes you kind of have to prod because they'll be like, oh, I do remember I, you know, I fell while carrying something five or 10 years ago and it bothered me for a little while, but I didn't really think much of it. And this is the first time I'm being checked out for it. it it's a little bit of a fishing expedition to get the trauma because keep in mind when talking about slack and snack, like I was saying, it's chronic going on for most likely years and years. So the initial trauma is is far back in their history. Okay. And, um, and so once you get that history, you find out that, you know, they've had some remote wrist injury maybe years ago and they have pain. What are some of the things that you want to look for when you're physically examining these patients? Are there any special maneuvers or are there any places that's, uh, that's particularly tender or, you know, hurt or uh, can you kind of just walk us through that? Sure. So the, the first thing to do is, is, you know, in hand surgery, you got a lot of little bones in a small area and just kind of taking the time to palpate appropriately really can help kind of guide at least your thought process. So sometimes they'll have that classic kind of snuff box tenderness, not necessarily because of a scapoid fracture, but just that's where that beaking and that arthritis is. And then as you uh, roll over kind of over that third dorsal, second dorsal compartment. They'll have that dorsal radial tenderness and they can be quite tender there. And then as you go further ulnar dorsally, you'll start feeling the SL. The SL is often very tender in its own right. 
And once you start kind of getting this radial side of the wrist with a little bit of a history of, oh yeah, I had a trauma a while ago, should really kind of peak you and to start thinking about that. One of the things you can do early on is, is the Watson maneuver, which there's been some studies showing that the sensitivity and specificity is, is, is not exactly 100%, but what you do is you put your, your thumb on the distal pole of the scaphoid, pushing it dorsally, and you take the wrist from ulnar to radial deviation. And what happens is, is since that SL is uncoupled and that scaphoid is uncoupled from the rest of the proximal row, it actually subluxes out the dorsal radius, feels some pain, and then when you relax on it, it clunks back in. And that's what the Watson maneuver is. But like I said, that's often in the early stages of the SL. When we start talking about slack and arthritic changes, the scaphoid's been sitting in a fixed position for a while. So you won't necessarily see that Watson because it doesn't have the freedom to shift out the, the back of the radius right of the scaphoid fossa. Okay. So say we get this patient, he comes in, you know, he has, um, he has some tenderness about the dorsal radial aspect of his wrist. When it comes to imaging, what images are you getting, and then what what are you looking for on your um, on your images? Like, what are you, what are you trying to find or or look for? Yeah, so I I get three views of the wrist. You know, pretty standard X rays for for the wrist. We get them for distal raised fractures or or quite anything, and it won't always be quite as stark as these. But we'll start first with that with that image on the on the left there. So you can see that that's a scaphoid non-union advanced collapse. You can already see that the proximal pole has become kind of cortical at that fracture site. And so that's been going on for a while. Then when you start talking about the arthritis, you see there's no space between the scaphoid and the styloid, or there you go, right in there. And so it's been totally obliterated. So that's going to decrease their range of motion, flexion, extension, especially radial deviation. If you note just on this x-ray, the third metacarpal is tilting a little ulnarly, and I bet he can't uh, get this into neutral. Then when you look at this snack specifically, you can see how the mid-carpal joint has already had some pretty significant changes, because this is a predictable uh, pattern of the mid-carpal joint between the scaphoid and the capitate. You can see that it's almost totally eroded away. It's irregular. There's cystic changes. There's cyst yep, cystic changes up there maybe a little bit of still space remaining between the captate and the lunate, but I bet if we got an oblique, you would see there's less space. But if you look, you can see the lunate and the lunate fossa appear to have intact cartilage, which is important whenever we go down our decision tree later on what kind of surgeries or, or options we have for him. Okay. Then if you, go, if you go over to the right x-ray, this is more of a classic slack type uh, appearance where the, the scapho-lunate interval is wide, you still have the beaking, but the scaphoid fossa is almost entirely gone. And then it's gone on to the mid-carpal joint, and that capitates trying to go right between the scaphoid and the lunate. Okay, yeah. And and so what is the, uh, what was the, you mentioned the third metacarpal making a little ulnar deviation. What's the significance of that, and why, why does it ulnar deviate? So the scaphoid needs to flex to get out of the way of the radius and to unlock the mid-carpal joint in radial deviation. That's kind of why the scaphoid, part of the reason why the scaphoid wants to flex. So when there's no space for, do, for, for the scaphoid to do that, and there's arthritic changes, then it can't really get out of the way. So you lose the ability to get radial deviation. That's often the most drastic finding you'll see is 
their lack of radial deviation or almost obligate ulnar deviation where they can't quite even get back to neutral. And that goes back to the dart throwing motion that we think the basis of the uh, mid-carpal joint is, is designed for and is eliminated if there's no radial, radial deviation. Uh, so I haven't heard about that. So the, the dart throwing, so it's pretty much saying that the mid-carpal joint is allowing for that, that wrist to flex when throwing a dart. It allows for that motion. Is that is that kind of where so we're getting scape, out of that? The scape, yeah, the scaphoid uh, getting out of the way in radial deviation is what allows you to radially deviate. And just like a dart, like a dart board at a at a bar or, um, you know, back when we hunted and did those type of things more aggressively, that was that radial to ulnar deviation. And on something like this, they wouldn't have that as well as the flexion extension would be, be limited also on this. Ah, that's cool. Next time I'm at a bar with some of my ortho friends, I'm going to drop that one piece of knowledge on them. They're like, well, you know why you're able to radial deviate? <laughs> See, I might be able to convince you going to hand surgery after all. <laughs> Who knows? There's still time. There's still, I have a couple months before I apply. Um, and so are you getting bilateral wrist x-rays with every patient or are you just getting x-rays of that one wrist at three views? So I will get, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I would get them, honestly, most of my patients for wrist pain would, uh, in before they get roomed, would have the x-rays for the injured wrist. If it was something similar to this, I don't really see a whole lot of utility of the contralateral. When it becomes more important with when there's not really much arthritis or maybe the SL maybe looks wide, maybe not, and then you get bilateral to compare the SL interval and you have to get uh, clinched fist or pencil grip because creating that flint or that fist causes the capitate to try and push between the scapegoat and the lunate. And you can see some sort of dynamic instability. So in those situations, I get bilateral. But okay. if on our patient with this, uh, unless he's got some sort of issue on his contralateral, it wouldn't really help me much. So say we have our patient, you know, these are his x-rays. It could, it could be slack or snack. And he said that he's never tried any type of treatment before. Do you do you have a non-operative treatment algorithm or do you then, you know, go and move to the operative, uh, you know, the operative treatment options depending on how severe it is or how does your treatment algorithm go? Yeah, so I, I still try a period of non-operative management for sure. You know, I tell these patients, you know, we're orthopedics and luckily, you know, wrist arthritis doesn't cause heart, lung, or brain issues. So if there's no pain, then overall, I'm pretty happy. So I will try an injection. I will try anti-inflammatories. And the other thing that I do is I like to put them in a splint, uh, you know, a cock-up wrist or something that doesn't allow flexion extension, just because I want them to see what it's like with limited mobility and how they're able to do their ADLs. Now, obviously, when we're talking about slack and snack, most of them still end up with some form of motion. But if it's pancarpal arthritis, especially, it shows them, hey, this is kind of the position your wrist is going to be in. So before we jump to that decision to do that, let's make sure you are comfortable with it being fused in this position. Okay. So say you have that patient, you've tried your non-operative, you know, management with these braces and whatnot, and they are still coming back to your office in six months saying, Doc, Dr. Rose, I, I tried it, you know, you know, I, I've worn it most of the times, I'm still having pain. How do you go about treatment options or what are the operative treatment options? And then how do you, I guess we can kind of go through each one as we get to it, but how do you, um, how do you go, uh, what are some of the treatment options to treat this? 
Yeah, so it goes back to that that staging system that we talk about. We'll, we'll talk specifically about the slack staging. So, you know, in that in that stage one where there's that radial styloid and the and scaphoid arthritis, but there's not that scaphoid fossa and proximal pole, you have a little more option. There, if the scaphoid is reducible, because normally they come in flexion, but if you ulnar deviate, if they come out of flexion back into a native, more extended position, then your options are there to do things such as a styloidectomy with a reconstruction of the SL, right? So our goal is to prevent further arthritis when it's only at um, the styloid. So let's see if any of these uh, pictures. So yeah, so there you see the slack uh, with the styloidectomy. The problem is, is if you don't reconstruct the SL uh, ligament, then it's not really going to do you much help. So generally in my hands, it's both the radial styloidectomy as well as the SL reconstruction because you can't do the repair because it's been so long. If you just do the radial uh, styloidectomy, you haven't really stopped the progression. The nice thing is it's a quick and easy recovery and it doesn't really change their motion much. Um, but, you know, in the next year or two, you may be having a, another conversation about, hey, why didn't we do more? Right. So for our stage one slacks, where, you know, most of our, our pathologies kind of, you know, at the, the radial styloid between there and the scaphoid, when you're doing your ligament reconstruction after you do a styloidectomy, are you just using are you just using anchors or how do you do that reconstruction? I'm, I'm sure there are many systems out there, but um, how do you yeah, do your reconstruction? So, yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. I'll tell you as far <laughs> as OIT as far as OIT is concerned, they try and avoid this because this is very much kind of the art of wrist surgery because there's a lot of in-betweens and it's difficult. You know, there's the uh, modified Brunelli where you take some of the FCR and you weave it, weave it through the scaphoid and then around to the lunate. There's also companies out there that have more of an all internal slash dorsal where uh, using push locks and a strip of tendon, you can kind of reconstruct it, which is where I've started going to more often uh, when it's the appropriate patient. Okay. But and, yeah, go ahead. No, but for the OITE, I, 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 you know, I kind of go through this with all of our residents every year as well as, uh, the graduating residents, I'd like to talk to them about their board. Haven't really heard too much stage one just because it is up in the air and difficult to treat. Right. Okay. And when you do a, the radial styloidectomy, do you ever do those for, for snack wrists? And do you do anything with the, the, the scaphoid at, the, at that point? So, yeah. So with the, the snack wrist, so back to my my spoon analogy, right? So the proximal pull on a snack wrist or on non-union is still coupled with the lunate by the SL, right? So that proximal pull is actually kind of in a much more normal spoon position than the SL. So that's why you tend to see less arthritis there until the later progression. So one theory is, is you do a distal pole excision of the scaphoid as well as the styloidectomy. And what that does is it, it's kind of similar to the slack wrist styloidectomy where it's taking the arthritis away with the hope that the arthritis on the scaphoid fossa uh, doesn't present itself till much later. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and so these, you know, this, this type of treatment algorithm is going to be mostly for our, our stage one um, patients with mostly, again, that, that the pathology between the 
radial styloid and the scaphoid. Are there any other treatment options that you may consider in patients that had these stage one um, slacks or snack injuries? Yeah, so there, there's something that uh, some recent literature actually talks about, and that's called an AIN and a PIN nerectomy. We know at the level of the joint uh, that the PIN and the AIN is proprioception and sensory only. It's already innervated all the, the musculature uh, proximal to the wrist. So the thought being is if I can take away your pain, you don't really care as much about your arthritis. And so you do a dorsal approach and remove about a centimeter of section of the posterior interosseous, go through the interosseous space, and then take out the anterior interosseous, another uh, centimeter of that nerve. And it decreases the pain. Some people say 70, some people say 90 or more. I use this in the occasional uh, like firefighters or police officers where they have arthritis and if they have a fusion of their wrist or any uh, hardware in place that they can lose their active duty status. Mm. So this is something you can say, hey, we're gonna try this. I normally inject them first to see if they get relief for it. So we can kind of say, hey, this is the kind of relief you get. But we can remove the AIN, PIN, it's limited risk, and it may buy you a couple of years or even more. Okay, and just, just out of curiosity, when you inject that, are you injecting it in the clinic and are you using like an ultrasound or is this something you're doing in the OR? Why are you, how are you injecting these patients? You just use some lidocaine, you know, or any type of local anesthetic? Yeah. So, so I like to do, uh, just use lidocaine, just 2% lidocaine. You can, you can use Marcaine to have it last a little bit longer and then you can do it freehand or you can do it under ultrasound. You'll feel often when you go through the, the interosseous. Uh, space into the anterior compartment. Okay. And again, so this is another treatment algorithm for our stage one um, slack slash snack wrist. You know, we talked about the radial stylodectomy and then now we, we talked about wrist denervation or neurectomies. Are there any anything else that you go for our stage one patients or, or do we move on to our stage two or uh, as far as operative treatment options? Yeah, I mean, those are generally the, the main stage. You know, when you're talking about uh, a snack wrist, I recently had a 19-year-old who injured at playing football when he was thir uh, 13, so six years previously, and he had a, a stage one snack wrist with a proximal pole. So there you can't take out the distal pole because there's only a small proximal pole left and you can get collapse of the mid-carpal. So I did a, what's called a Satorianus, or I did a vascularized pedicle to the scaphoid as well as the scaphoid, or as well as the styloidectomy, A, to remove that arthritis point, but B, hopefully to get it to unite just because he is 19 and, and so young. Okay. All right. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty neat. Honestly, I can't lie. Um, so what are, I guess, you know, the other options that I always hear about, and there are always questions about it on the ORT, or at least there are always answer choices. I, I don't know if there are always a correct answer, um, but we always hear, you know, like proximal oral carpectomies, and then you hear about, you know, four corner fusions. I guess, can, can we kind of go into those options and what they are, why they work, and then, you know, what patient you'd use them for? Absolutely, yeah. So if we can bring up kind of an image with some, um, more advanced arthritis. So here's either one of these is, is great. So when you start talking about that 
stage two or, or stage three arthritis. So we'll, we'll talk about plaque specifically here. Now your scaphoid and the scaphoid fossa uh, is pretty damaged with no cartilage. So now you're going a little bit more aggressive. And I do emphasize to all my patients that this is a quote unquote salvage procedure, right? At this point in time, anything we're gonna do will not give you normal motion or restore you to pre-injury. But if I can get you to have less to no pain with a similar range of motion as you have now, uh, would you be content with that? And most say yes. So when we're talking about that stage two, the scaphoid needs to be removed either way. And so for a proximal row carpectomy or the four corner, both of them, the scaphoid is being removed. Now, when you're talking about a proximal row, you have to take into account the capitate as well as the lunate fossa. Because if you see here now, you've removed the proximal rows. So the weight-bearing surface is actually the capitate sitting in the lunate fossa. And so if you're at a stage three where the capitate is pretty worn, this would not make a good option. And that's generally on the OITE, they're gonna kind of show you either they will only have one option of a PRC or four corner, or if they have both options on there, that means that there's probably something going on in the mid-carpal joint. It's a stage three where a PRC, if you have no cartilage on your capitate and then you make that the weight-bearing surface, obviously they're not gonna do very well because now you just take an arthritic bone and put it back in the joint. So it's still gonna be arthritis. Okay. And so that's when you start kind of pivoting more towards the four corner. And just reading on this, I saw that there, there are like a bunch of different different techniques as far as proximal row carpectomies. I've, I've saw, you know, just like you just said, they, they mentioned traditionally, if you have any degeneration of your capitate articular surface or that lunate fossa, like you're saying, that that's kind of a contraindication. But now they're saying that there are different techniques as far as, far as you know, proximal row carpectomies with osteochondral resurfacing of the capitate with a graft or uh, you know, capitate head resection with a dorsal capsule interposition. Do you, you use any of these techniques or, um, or do you, you know, any, anything that you can uh, educate us about any of these other options or, you know, because, uh, you know, that's just something that yeah, I read about. So I'm just, not, just interested to see. Yeah. So now you see there the, the PRC with osteochondral, that's essentially like the oats of the knee. Right, so you're taking a section of cartilage with some subchondral bone, you're removing the cartilage of the capitate that, or you're removing that section of the capitate where the cartilage is worn and replacing it with uh, the cartilage that you harvested. I've done this once to mixed uh, results, but I, I think it's something to know that exists. I think we need a little bit more literature on that. Some of the people that do it more often are pretty excited about it. One of the things that I do and you could argue you could do this for almost all PRCs is the capsular interposition you have there on the bottom. So I use this when there's maybe a little bit of wear on the capitate head, but it's not significant. And what you do is you take a distal base flap of the capsule, meaning you, re you release the capsule at the rim of the radius, leave it attached dorsally, you do your PRC, and then you actually take a fiber wire ethabon and secure that capsule from dorsal around volar to the volar ligament. So now you've tucked the capsule underneath the capitate. So now mm -hmm. the capitate sitting on the capsule, sitting in the lunate fossa. So now it's got itself a nice smooth surface uh, where that little bit of arthritis on the capitate won't make as big of a difference. 
Okay. And you said you, you do typically use these other, any particular patients that you use this for and, or, you know, that you can think of. Yeah. So when you're starting to go down the capsule or position route, you're, you're talking about, do I do this versus do I do a four corner fusion? So the four corner fusion is something that, that I think uh, works well, but obviously it, it's got some downsides. Anytime you're trying to get four bones to fuse, as we know from anywhere in orthopedics, Sometimes A, that's difficult, and B, if you have a type C host, uh, a smoker, you're a little more hesitant about trying to do a fusion. So someone like that, a PRC with capsular interposition would be great because you don't have to worry about uh, the fusion mass. You don't have to mobilize them for three months. There's no hardware. Hmm. There's, there's some recent studies coming out that show that PRC does just as well as for corner, if not better, even in the younger population. So just to backtrack, the classic literature was, you know, a young, healthy person gets the four corner because the weight-bearing surface is still the lunate in the lunate fossa. So uh, the anatomic weight-bearing surface versus the PRC, the radius of curvature of the proximal pole of the cap is different. The newer literature says, hey, they do, the PRC does just as well and it has less complication risks because of the four corner can have a non-union or, or other issues, prominence of hardware. The only thing I would say to kind of, you know, warn people when they're reading these studies is if you think about it, it's a little bit of a cemented hip versus a press fit. The cemented hip does well early on and then it fails later, whereas the press fit, uh, once it integrates, then it does better later. So when you're talking about these PRCs, they do well early on, but none of the studies are showing us 20 years from now, what is that surface like? Right. Whereas the four corner does, has a higher rate of early complications, but we know long-term that maintaining the lunate and the lunate fossa as a weight-bearing surface may be a better idea. So just something recently that's come out over the past few years, which are leading people to be a little more aggressive on the PRC route. Okay. That may be something I have to uh, look up and, and read upon. I think that'd be a little interesting to read some of those articles and um, see, you know, what they're referring to. And then hopefully there's somebody out there getting some great data, you know, that can that'll publish something saying how these how these patients are doing 20 or 25 or 30 years later. That way, you know, all of our inquisitive minds can be uh, uh, can be stimulated by reading that that, that those results. Um, and speaking on it, I know we mentioned it a lot this podcast so far, but what is a four-corner arthrodesis um, and, and, and what patients do we use this for? So the four-corner is a excision of the scaphoid, and then you fuse the captate, the hamate, the lunate, and the triquetrum with some form of fixation. And I normally use distal radius bone graft also since we're already there, just as some nice um, osteoinductive type uh, bone graft. And we use this more so on the patient that has that bad capitate arthritis, has bad capital lunate arthritis. Because if we did a PRC, they would just have arthritic, arthritic bone sitting in the lunate fossa, defeating our purpose. So a patient that's uh, healthy, otherwise capitate arthritis, the four corner does well. The studies do show that there's maybe a little bit more uh, grip strength that's maintained with the four corner because the height is maintained. And so some people, laborers, 
young males. I recently had a physician who was very active who, uh, while older, I recommended a PRC, but he was pretty adamant about the four corner just because he did a lot of active things and the grip strength was really important to him. Okay. So those patients get the four corner, but like I was alluding to, and I, I think you went by a picture with the with the plate, but your concern is, is that you can get a non-union of the four corner and uh, non-union of a four corner becomes very difficult and often can lead somewhat towards a, a pan-carpal fusion later down the road. Okay. And, um, okay. And so those are going to be the patients and that kind of general overview of four corner orthodesis. But just, just out of curiosity, what is your surgical approach to this? Are you going dorsal? Or are you going dorsal and volar? Like, how do you generally, you know, in the operating room, how do you, how do you deal with these? Yeah, so I actually tell the patients uh, beforehand that unless they have a strong preference, it's going to be an intraoperative decision. The reason being is that I think a, cap or a uh, capsular interposition or a PRC does well. There's less complication rate, faster recovery, and quite frankly, technically, it's easier, right? You're just removing the bones without needing to worry about anything fusing. So if the cartilage on the capitate looks good and there's not a contraindication, I tend to lead towards the PRC. Now, if the, the capitate looks horrible and the arthritis looks horrible, then I'll lead to the four corner. And all this is done by a dorsal approach, uh, looking at the capitate and looking at the lunate articulation to see what kind of arthritis there is or is not. Okay. And I know we were just um, talking about plates and just some of them, when I was reading on the, on the different techniques you use for these four corner orthodesis, there was, you know, there was one topic brought up about circular plate fixation. I know some of the pictures before that they use K wires to hold, uh, to hold the bones together, hoping they would fuse. Can you kind of talk about the, uh, the, the, the fixation method and I guess downsides or upsides to them? Sure. So I, it's kind of interesting because I actually take a little bit of a different approach. So the circular plate fixation has a higher rate of non-union. That literature is, I think, 10 to 15 years old minimally. I actually do use a newer version of the circular plate. The newer version actually has a setup where there's a cortical screw that goes into each of the four corners. And the cortical screw sucks the four corners in together, actually providing compression. And then I put locking screws on top of that to just secure that fixation in that place. So that's the way I personally tend to do it. Okay. And really, when, you can, when we're talking about four ahead. corners, you're talking about each corner just being being one of the different bones, like decapitate, hamate, eliminate, and triquitrum. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. So so a cortical screw in each one of those to compress and bring them together after I put some bone graft in. Now there's people that use uh, headless compression screws, which also work well. You can also use K wires, although I would worry about K wires because you can't really get that compression that you can from either the plate or the headless compression screws. Okay. And another thing that I've noted or I've seen talked about is the position of the lunate when you when you fuse these. I've, I've seen some say that they, you can fuse them flex, you can fuse them neutral, you can, you can fuse them in an extended position. Why, why, number one, why is that important? And then, you know, are there any ups or downs to each of them? Yeah, so, you know, back to that DZ deformity, right? So the, the lunate's trying to sit in an extended position, which means that the, the capitate 
will hit the dorsal rim or the radius where you'll lose that motion, which is primarily an extension, which makes sense if you've lost most of your mid-carpal extension just from the deformity, then you're gonna lose it after you fuse it. If you put it, but the benefit of that is you get more flexion by putting it in an extended position. Whereas the contrary is if you put it in a flexed position, you can actually get a little bit more extension. Mm. My mm. opinion is, is we don't do a lot of things in significant wrist flexion. Most of our power grip, if you think about going out to shake someone's hand, your wrist is actually in extension. It's not neutral, it's not flexion, because that's the biomechanical strength of the flexor tendons, as well as uh, the thanars, hypothanars, et cetera, is being in that extended position gives you more strength. So in my mind, I want them to make sure they can get into a power grip. So I tend to put them in neutral or even a hair of a couple degrees of flexion. I err on the side of that. Ah, okay. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense, you know, thinking about uh, the functionality of the hand and, and what you need to use things for as far as um, uh, your daily, different daily activities. You know, that definitely makes more sense. Even when you're opening a door, you're not really flexing your wrist too much. At least I don't flex my wrist too much mm -hmm. when I'm opening a door. Uh, there may be some out there to do. I don't, I don't know. But, you know, other things, um, technical aspects of this four corner arthrodesis, is one that I was looking at I was talking about fusing the um, cap capital lunate joint with or without triquetrum excision. What is, uh, I guess, what would uh, make you want to excise the triquetrum versus leave it? Like, what are, you know, why is this, I guess, like, why is this a thing, you know? Yeah, so the thought is, is that if the, you know, the triquetrum wants to extend in ulnar deviation and you fuse it in a neutral position, then it could block your ability to get that uh, ulnar deviation. I tend to just fuse all four. I want more ma uh, mass of the fusion site. And uh, you can fuse it in the column manner. And what I mean by that is you can fuse the capital lunate and fuse that hamate and the triquetrum and not fuse between the capitate and the hamate. And that's because the capitate and the hamate have very limited motion between the two. They're relatively fixed. So in theory, if you fuse just those columns, it should have enough stability for your fusion and to have successful four corner, although you're not really creating a four corner. Ah, okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. And so again, and I know we mentioned a couple of times when we look at you know, proximal row carpectomy versus, um, versus a four corner arthrodesis, we mentioned before that proximal carpectomy, you don't have much of a, uh, there's a less complication rate. And, you know, I guess the, the the uh, procedure is technically a little bit easier you know there's no need to fuse the bones in case you have a host that you know it may be a very uh, high a1c so they're a diabetic and they're, they're a smoker um, is there anything else between going between four corner orthodesis versus prc the surgical uh, techniques that we should know yeah so kind of like anything else and especially similar foot ankle is if you're doing the four corner I spend more time on the debridement of the joint surfaces than anything else. And that's just because if you have any sort of cartilage and you don't get that good bleeding uh, subchondral trabecular bone, then it won't fuse. So, so that's number one. For the PRCs, you know, you're relying on the radioscapho capitate, which is one of the volar ligaments coming off of the styloid 
that goes along the waist of the scaphoid into the capitate. Well, when we remove that scaphoid, the only thing keeping the capitate from drifting ulnarly or sitting over the distal ulna is that radioscaphocapitate ligament. So it's really important not to get too aggressive with your scaphoid excision and injure that ligament. Okay. Okay. And I think I saw, you know, that it's some, there's some um, studies that originally they were saying that, you know, for coronal orthodesis, they were looking at the, the radius of curvature of the um, capitate, you know, versus a lune, as well as the amount of cartilage on the different bones. But I know that, you know, there's still excellent results with proximal um, carpectomies. Um, and just before we wrap up here, is there any, I think we did a great job reviewing and going over slack and snack wrists and some of the, uh, oh, actually, no, one more thing, complete wrist arthrodesis. Um, when do you use this and when do you convert, do you use this number one? And if so, is it when you're, are you converting a, a failed four corner to this or um, can you kind of just touch on um, complete wrist arthrodesis? Yeah, so complete wrist arthrodesis is actually a good surgery, but it's definitely the end of the line, right? They're not going to have any more wrist motion, no radial ulnar deviation, no flexion extension. You're going to put them in that position of what I was talking about, kind of that power grip position with a little bit of ulnar deviation, a little bit of wrist extension. So the person that has this is someone that has had slack, snap, or some other form of arthritis, whether it's rheumatoid or, or just post-traumatic, where they've lost all of the joint surfaces. So PRC doesn't make sense because the capital lunate joint is no longer uh, having any cartilage. The lunate fossa and the proximal uh, portion of the lunate doesn't have cartilage, kind of like this picture where if you try to do the four corner or the PRC, you're still gonna end up with an arthritic joint somewhere. So for them, you just, end up fusing the uh, entire wrist to uh, the radius. And there's a couple of different ways to do it, which is a whole nother talk, but you can do a PRC first, which is what I tend to do. And then just to try and get the capitate to fuse with the lunate fossa, because that way I'm only really worried about one articulation fusing. Here, mm -hmm. you have to worry about the radius to the lunate and the lunate to the capitate. And they also cross the uh, third CMC joint. So a little more places for failure and or the need for fusion. Okay. No, I'm glad that we touched on, um, you know, complete wrist arthrodesis. I only see pictures of it. I never, I've never seen one in real life. Or I haven't met a patient that's had one. It's always something that I, I just see like in textbooks and pictures. And I think it's probably just because what you just mentioned that this is typically an end all, you know, this is a last resort that you will use for patients after you've done all these different procedures and, you know, they're just not successful with that. Um, Dr. Rose, I think this was a great talk. You know, we, we definitely spoke a good amount on um, different treatment options for slack and snack. And before we wrap up, is there anything else that you think the listeners should know? Maybe it, it might be a high point for OITEs or, you know, a high thing when you're seeing these patients or something that they should go away from this talk remembering? Yeah, so just kind of like I was reiterating, as far as the OITE is concerned, they will give you a reason to choose one or the other. They won't put both on there if both would work. So normally what that means is you'll see that the, the capitate is worn or the capital lunate is worn, or sometimes you'll have the lunate fossa is entirely worn, pushing you to a full wrist fusion. So if you look at that kind of cornerstone of the wrist or the capital lunate or the lunate fossa, 
it'll help guide you on whether you're going to do a four corner versus a PRC versus a wrist fusion. Perfect. Um, I think this was a great talk. I think we covered a lot of high, yeah, high yield um, pertinent information. I know, I know I learned a lot just from the talking to you and uh, before, I mean, uh, but I mean, I learned a lot just from talking to you that I didn't learn reading through the articles preparing for this, uh, for this podcast. So I definitely appreciate you for being on here. Um, before we go, we always, uh, you know, ask our, our guests if there's any ways that, you know, our, our, our listeners can reach you or follow you, whether it be Twitter or Instagram or any type of social media or email that you want the people to know about. Yeah, right now, you know, kind of like you and I had, had talked, I, I believe my Twitter account now linked to Nailed It Ortho. And so that's one way to find me. It's just uh, Ryan Rose MD. And, you know, that's the best and easiest way. I love to have conversations and continue to grow the, the ortho Twitter and orthopods, helping other orthopods is a good way to go about it. So that's the best way to get a hold of me. I am at uh, UT Health Science Center, San Antonio. So UT San Antonio. Uh, you can find my email there and easily reach out to me that way. Well, Dr. Rose, again, we appreciate you so much for coming on the Nailed It Ortho show. It was a great talk, and, and, and thank you again for your time. I appreciate the, the invite, and I always enjoy talking about it. So thanks again. Again, thank you all for listening to episode number 50 with Dr. Rose on Slack and Snack Rest. Now, please, if you have not, take a second to go and leave us a review. And again, one ask that we do have is please share this with a friend. For show notes, you can go to nailedortho.com slash slack s l a c and you can see all the pictures and all the notes that we used to come by with this podcast until next time